Okay, folks, welcome to the Coastal Advocacy Adventures podcast. I am here in beautiful San Luis Pass, Texas, at the county park with Wayne Pedigo and Kevin Burns. Gentlemen, good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Shane. Um, let's start off with some introductions first. Kevin, why don't you kick it off here? All right. Um, tell you a little bit about myself. I grew up here on the coast in the Freeport area. I've uh, been fishing in this area since I was a young kid. Um, grew up and went to school in Freeport, graduated from Brazport. Um, been real active in the fishing community in this area. I've uh, been a waymaster here locally for about 10 years or so. I ran the fishing fiesta for six years, and I work a lot of local area tournaments, both inshore and offshore. And most recently, um, started working here at San Luis Pass as a park ranger. Would you? Uh, what was your background career-wise before this? A little bit of everything, or I have done a little bit of everything. Um, started out working for Kroger whenever I was in high school. Worked my way up into management with them. Moved on and um, had a couple of other business management jobs. Finally got burnt out with corporate America and decided that that wasn't what I wanted to do anymore and started doing electrical work and did electrical work for about 15 years doing electrical construction, both commercial and industrial. And a few other side jobs along the way. Um, I did my own fishing radio talk show here in Brazoria County on an internet radio station called KBRAZ. Um, worked at, for a while at Freeport Marina as a dock master. Then a little bit of a little bit of everything, a little in-home electrical, plumbing, and appliance repair for a few years up in Sugarland before moving back down here to the coast. Jack of all trades, master of fishing. Hopefully, <laughs> <laughs> every t- every chance I get a try. How many how many days a week would you say you you're on the water, or at least on on a shore on a bank fishing? On on average, probably two and a half to three days a week. On a good week, five days. <laughs> Now, do you, do you go out with, with a, okay, a specific, all right, today I'm going to target reds or I'm going to target flounder? Or you Nin, just... 90% of what I do is targeting flounder. Occasionally, I'll get a chance and I'll run offshore and catch some snapper, amberjack, or whatever, tuna. Um, then, But most of what I do is, is target flounder. A couple days in the summertime when the we have pristine conditions in the surf, I like to get out there and wade chest deep and catch some of the big trout and Spanish mackerel that are running down the surf. Are you are you an artificial guy only, or do you, you live bait or whatever it takes? I know that there's a lot of purists out there that think that artificial is the only way to go, but I pr- predominantly use live bait myself. Yeah. Okay, Wayne. Let's, yeah. Let's hear from you. Uh, Wayne Pedigo. I'm born and raised in Cleburne, Texas, and uh, got out of college and went to work in the oil field. Went to, uh, lived in Scotland for about a year. Came back and got in the convenience store business. I uh, was in that for 25 years. How, how did you do that from oil field to convenience store? When I came back, my dad had recently bought a convenience store where uh, they'd killed the man that owned it, and he bought it from the family, and he was working 16 days, I they, mean, wait, s- they, seven days a week. They killed, what do you mean they killed the man? Uh, the man that had it, somebody shot him and killed him. Oh, my gosh. And he just had the one store. It had been there forever. My dad bought the business and was going to try to rejuvenate it. And he'd been doing that for two months, working seven days a week. And that all coincided with when I came back from overseas. So I went in partners with him, and we worked it for a, about a year. And then he got out, and my brother and I took it over. And then we did that for 25 years, had a small chain. 
that we sold out. And I've been flounder fishing ever since. How many storages did y'all? We had three. Three. That one, and we built two more. What was it? What was the name? Pedagogues Food and Gas. Pedagogues Food and Gas. Twenty-five years. Twenty-five years doing that. Twenty-five years. So, how did you get from that to coming down here every year? And, and, and after fishing? I retired, I visited with an old friend of mine every morning at the lake. He he worked forty-three years for Texas Parks and Wildlife. And he had forgotten more than I'll probably ever know about wildlife. And, uh, what was his name? His name was Bud Moon from Bud Alvarado, Moon. Texas. Okay. Dear sweet man, I loved him a lot. But he told me, he said, you ought to go down to Rollover Pass and go flounder fishing. And he kind of got me interested, and I bought Chester Moore's book, Flounder Fever. Yeah. That book probably had more influence on my life outside of the Bible than any book I've ever read. And, well, Chester would be glad to hear that. Oh, man. <laughs> he probably would. Yeah. But I went to roll over, I stayed a month, and just couldn't get enough of it. And I started learning how to flounder fish. That was in 2000. And I've been down here every fall since then. What was your first year to camp here at San Luis? Uh, 2006, I believe. That's when the hurricane hurricane hit rollover 05, I believe. Yeah. And then I came here in 06. And, uh, this, is your ten, this is your 10th year? Yes, 10th year here. 10th year here. Yeah, also spent a year or so at Quintana Park, too, did you? Yes. Yeah. When the hurricane hit here, I believe it was 07. Yeah. We stayed in Quintana, but we drove over here to fish every day. That's, this was the that's about how long I've been friends with Wayne. Um, we met, I think, initially on a fishing website that we were both members on, Fish Coastal Texas, years ago, that I was an administrator on. And we struck up a friendship because of the, the love of flounder fishing. And wasn't too long after that that we started getting together and fishing with each other. And I think what wasn't too much longer after that that you actually became active in helping collect the specimens for the sea center for the hatchery. Right. It's a it's it's not a huge brotherhood. I mean I mean there's some people that target flounder, but they also go out and try to catch reds or they'll go to the surf and try to catch cow, uh, trout. But I mean you're mostly you come here for flounder and for that's all months months at a time two months at a time occasionally there will be a bonus redfish while you're flounder fishing or a <laughs> trout but when you're targeting flounder that's what you're after you whenever you develop a love for flounder fishing there's nothing else like it i was telling buzz a while ago i had a i got caught a, a 19 and a half inch flounder the other day and she just bam never moved and I said, that just makes the hair on the back of my neck stand straight up. So she she sucked down to the seabed and wasn't, wasn't budging. No, wasn't budging. Wasn't nervous about anything. And, and by the way, Buzz is, is, is Kevin. Yeah, just, that, just actually, so that, that was know. my handle on the fishing website, okay. which was uh, a nickname that I developed back whenever I was in high school. How'd that come about? Well, um, my next-door neighbor, Mike Matoka, was on the baseball team, and they were – pretty good they were going to state and in the playoffs every year so i was um four years younger than him and i would always go watch all of their games and him and all the team members on the team all knew me and they said i was always hanging around like an old buzzard and that's where my nickname <laughs> came about i've always wondered how you got that name <laughs> all right so we'll refer to you as buzz for the rest of this, this episode right. here <laughs> Okay, so yeah, we're you know flounder is is it, it's a different type of it's a different type of fishing. I mean, it's um, it's not for everybody. It's not it's not for everybody. I mean, it's guys, slow. You gotta have a lot of patience. You really you really do. But you get into a spot, you get into a hole, and before you know it, you got 
you got all the fish you need you got your limit or whatever and uh and it could be it could be pretty intense but i think getting to that point is could be a slow process so let's go into a little bit about uh wayne about how you how you fish for flounder what um let's start off with with your approach you know so you you've got a boat here right i do i have a boat i, I do quite a bit of bank fishing and quite a bit of boat fishing too um you really have to know your bottom, what what the topography is on the bottom. You need to know where there's ledges. I, I generally char- target ledges, shoulders, uh, work the tops of them over the sides, and I'll even work the bottom. It may be 10, 12 feet deep in the, off the shoulder, and I like to target those bottoms too. Do you, you look for a, uh, a specific type of change in the bottom or just, I mean, that just the slightest six inch different in contour or are you looking for a couple of feet difference in contour? no i like several feet uh if if the top of the shoulder of course it all depends on tide and water clarity there needs i think there needs to be enough water there to give them make them feel comfortable and camouflaged uh two three feet four or even six or eight as long as it is on an edge where it drops off into deeper water and they can make a quick escape and Sometimes they'll lay over on the side of the shoulder. Sometimes they'll be at the bottom. You just cover it all and see where where they are and then target that area. Yeah. Um, what's the, you, you mentioned depth so that they feel safe. I mean, what's the shallowest you'll fish in out, out of the boat? Probably two to three feet. Unless it's at night. And then you're fishing shallower at night. I'd fish shallower at night. There's not really a limit at night. I've I've been out with lights trying to catch flounder and nets and seen them in two and three inches of water. Are you always looking for moving water during the day? I mean, you're looking for good current with, with tide movements or, or wind pushing water out of a, a bayou, or, bayou something. or something like right. that? Yeah, I, I like to have the water movement. If on a slack tide, it's it's generally real slow. What about what about structure? What do you? I mean, do you if you don't have contour, are you out there fishing pylons or structure? Or anything pylons, like yeah, absolutely. Uh, one day, two years ago, there was a huge tree washed up on this. It was in the middle of this sandbar, and I could get out there because I've got a jack plate and a tunnel hole. I could get to it, but I couldn't take off to get back. But I'd run out there. And behind it was a huge hole that was probably the length of the log and about five or six foot deep. I caught eight flounder and eight cast my first trip out there. And then when they quit biting, I'd ease over and get my prop in that hole, get on plane so I could get back across the flats to get out. So you, the log, with the log was sticking up partially, you could see it? It out. was laying flat. Was laying yeah, flat. you could see it. It was in shallow water, like a foot deep, depending on the tide. How long were you able to keep that to yourself? You know, I never saw anybody else go out there except kayakers. And I saw a few kayakers venture out and try it, but not many. That's a good spot. It you was, can keep it. I tried it every day. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you do it. You do a little bit of bank fishing here at, at, at the park. Right. Uh, here in the park, I, uh, I'll put a weight on. And this started years ago. And it changes. Every year it changes a little bit. But I'll drag the bottom and feel where where the shoulders are size weight oh a five eighths okay uh just drag the bottom feel for hang-ups 
uh, shell uh, shoulders where, where it drags heavy, where the shoulder tops out and it stops, mm. and just put all that in memory and set coordinates on the bank so you can walk back to it and know where these spots are and then just fish those those shoulders and humps. Now you, you're, you're live bait as well, right? Or do you throw artificial? As long as I can get live bait, I do. As it gets colder, then I'll go to artificial. Uh, what's your what's your preference? Bun minnows or mullet or does it matter to you? Or do you? When I'm targeting the smaller flounder uh, for the for the hatchery, I've used the mud minnows. That's what I like to use. Uh, larger flounder, uh, mullet. For those big females, what what inch mullet? I mean, what's what's I guess I guess my question is, what's the biggest mullet you've seen a flounder take? Oh, probably about five inches, but I I won't hardly fish with them larger than that. I hear stories of people catching them on seven and eight inch mullet. I've never done it, but I guess I don't have. The, it takes so much patience anyway, and to try to catch, you know, a twenty-five plus inch fish, something that's going to take a mullet that big. There's not that many of them around, and yeah. it really gets monotonous. Yeah. Well, Buzz, what about you? You kind of the same thing. You look for, you know, difference in structure and contour, and um, you know, how do you approach? My background basically, the first twenty-five years of my flounder fishing were fishing in the Brazos River, and there are a lot of areas along the Brazos River where you may have a primary and a secondary drop-off, all within a twenty-five foot um, range from the edge of the Gulf, and the um. Sometimes I'll do a fan cast pattern. He's talking in reference to Chester Moore. Um, Chester actually has a class called Flatfish University he used to put on that um, covered a lot of the different things like that, the different areas to target. Myself personally, I'll get out there in the areas that I've been familiar fishing with for years, and I'll start out one area working a deeper drop, and then I'll work my way fan casting all the way up to six and eight inches of water. And wherever I find an area that the fish are at, I'll continue working that area. Generally, that's a, that'll be the same area that they'll be staged in. And once you catch one fish in that area, a lot of times you'll catch multiples. Describe fan casting real quick so people can kind of visualize it. Fan casting, what I call fan casting, is kind of wagon wheel. You start off at a quadrant on the left-hand side, and then you may move after that cast. If you don't pick anything up, move your cast a foot or so to the right and keep, continue that pattern moving right two foot until you've covered an area with a similar to a wagon wheel with the with the cast that you're dragging in okay okay um primarily though um areas that i know that are the drop-offs like he's talking about are are good areas to to find sometimes they'll be on that lower drop-off in the deeper water and sometimes they'll be staged up shallow until you get out there and work work the area um trying to find them what i'll do is i'll fan cast one area if i don't pick up any fish in that area i'll move down the bank i'm i primarily have have bank fished most of my life and i've i've caught a lot of big flounder just bank fishing every once in a while i get out on a boat um but and i can get to some areas that i'm generally not fishing especially in the brazos river area you get over to wolf island and there's a lot of bank on wolf island to carry cover um but finger mullet for me, I like using um, three three inch finger mullet primarily, and I'm, I'll occasionally use mud minnows whenever I can't find a finger mullet. I may stop at a bait shop and pick up a dozen uh, mud minnows to start out with on days that I know that the mullet are hard to locate. But generally, I, I catch all my bait in the cast net. 
um it's easier for me to to fish like that occasionally i'll i'll switch over at times and do a tandem rig where i'll actually put an artificial bait on the bottom and then come up with the the rig that i use 14 to 16 inches with a drop loop on the hook that i normally hook my finger mullet i do mine all together different though than wayne does wayne wayne usually hooks his up in the lips i'm i'm doing mine different he you do more of a carolina rig don't you I do I do mine where I tie a half inch bullet weight the same type of weight that he uses on the bottom and I come 14 to 16 inches up and I'll tie a three to four inch drop loop use the lead line to cinch your loop so that it won't slip and then I thread that loop through the eye of the hook and I'm hooking mine as far back in the back on the tail as I can and as I'm dragging that mullet I'm actually dragging that mullet backwards but he's sitting there kicking fan and putting off a good vibration and it, it for me it's worked very well for the last 35 years getting the attention of the flounder as you're dragging it by them so visualizing that i'm wondering if you get fewer gut hooks than someone that's hooking them through the, through the head is that or does that just have to deal with how how quick you you're able to set the hook i talking about being patient for flounder fishing um myself personally whenever i'm dragging and i feel that thump I actually engage my reel and put it on free spool and I'll sit there and I'll put my thumb on the spool. Sometimes that flounder, whenever he strikes that bait, he may get up and move three or four foot and lay back down. If he gets ready to move and you don't have your reel engaged, he's going to feel that and he's going to let go of the bait. Flounders, whenever they bite, the analogy that I give is they're kind of like a constrictor. Whenever uh, I a snake hits a mouse it'll sit there and hold it in its mouth until it's dead before it swallows it um flounder do similarly they sit there and hold the bait in in their mouths and if you try to set the hook before they've had a chance to swallow it then you're going to you're not going to get a hook set you give them my rule of thumb is count to 30 or 40 once they bit that bait before they engulf and they'll swallow it and then I, I re-engage my reel, get the slack out of it, and I give it one hard hook set, try to cross their eyes, kind of like you do when you're bass fishing. And um, at that point, you're either hooked up and you've got a fight on your hands. After that, I, one mistake that I see people do is they continually pump their rods like they do when they're bass fishing. You don't want to do that with a flounder. You just want to keep steady, constant pressure on them and reel them in, just like you're winching in a sack of potatoes. Yeah. Um I've heard the I've heard the express or the you know one one thing to use uh, or visualize in your head when when you feel that thump and you're waiting to set the hook is you know one old Sabine guy told me he light a cigarette and wait for the cigarette to burn out or <laughs> count to fifteen or something like that. So what's your what's your approach like? How do I, you know when you've you've let it hold it long enough? Generally, I mean rule of thumb from from years and years of experience the thirty count. On a three-inch mullet, I'll count 30. On one that's a little bigger, get up to a four-inch mullet, then I'll count a little longer, up to sometimes a minute. But speaking of the light of cigarette technique, one of my best friends that I used to fish with all the time, David Gines, that's no longer with us, um, that was his technique. Whenever he got a big strike, one of the bone-jarring slams, he would light a cigarette, and he would smoke that cigarette before he would set the hook. And he was a heck of a flounder angler. See, and that's – having the the uh the patience to do that i think is hard for someone that's like a strictly bass fisherman or even like a trout fisherman because it's a totally different tactic that you have to employ i mean that takes a lot of patience just to wait there and not set a hook for a minute 
the website that me and Wayne met on, there was another member, John Allgood. He went by Hookset Four, was his name. Wayne was Wayner on the website. Um, John primarily fishes for flounder with artificial, and he'll use uh, um, the gulp sand eels. And he said he he used to do the count too himself, and he would probably have about an eighty percent hookup ratio. He went to a different technique though, where Whenever he would get a bite, he wouldn't set the hook until the fish started to swim off, and his hookup ratio went up near 90 to 95%. Um, everybody's got a different technique. Now, that talking about patience, that would be – he see, he would sit there five minutes sometimes before he would ever get the hook set into the fish, but he he would catch the fish. Yeah. That's what it's all about to me because once I get that thump, I just go into a zone, and I'm 100% focused on that rod tip and that line. And that's just the neatest 30 seconds of my life. And one of the things I have found, too, though, that um, whenever a fish strikes, if he feels you in any way, even even excess pressure on the on your on your line from your line, he's going to spit that bait. They're they're smart fish (laughs) when they feel something's not natural. They just let go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I even go to the point before I click my line. I pinch it with my left hand so that vibration of clicking that reel off doesn't travel back down to the fish. Yeah. Is it frustrating if you're taking a newbie with you out on the boat or, or taking someone that, that doesn't do a lot of flounder fishing and you know they're getting they're they're getting bites but they're not getting hook sets. I mean, does it does it take does it frustrate you as a experienced fisherman or you just go along with it and I've, I, many years ago at the mouth of the browsers during the flounder run, I would, from the fishing website, we had thousands of members on that fishing website and there were all of them that wanted to learn how to catch flounder. I would get them to come down there to the mouth of the browsers. I would catch their bait. I would rig it up and show them how to rig it up for the technique that I used. And I would stand there with them and tell them exactly how to retrieve the bait, super slow, creeping it across the bottom. My best description for how to how to work your bait whenever you're um retrieving it is kind of almost like you're um bass fishing with a worm where you're just slowly bumping it across the bottom and i would watch them whenever they get the bite i'd tell them what to do tell them how to count and i so i had seven people in one week that had never caught a flounder before that i actually got to to coach them and teach them how to do it to where they they knew what they were doing after after you've caught a couple of flounder and you know that technique you're flat hooked basically yeah. that's the best description that's right um <laughs> to describe the the fever that you develop from learning how to catch a fish like that and, and you do have to have patience some people don't have the patience to be able to wait and give it time to for the fish to swallow the bait like w- what you really need to do in order to catch flounder consistently anybody who's fished any other fish it's just natural when you get get a bit bite you automatically it's just a reflex you set the hook. Yeah, you have to train yourself. You, you have to be trained, train yourself. I crappie fish in the summertime, and I have to retrain myself every time I go home and every time I come back down here. <laughs> so, yeah, you, you you fish for the finest. You get the finest freshwater tasting fish, and then you go for the finest saltwater tasting fish. That's it. The bay. That's it. Yeah, you don't joke around with that. <laughs> I don't wait as long as Buzz does, typically because I'm trying to salvage fish. And if I wait too long and he swallows the hook, I've I've defeated my whole purpose. Yeah. But that's that's just me. I'm I'm pretty unique in what I do. Yeah. And that's another thing too. Years ago, when I first started flounder fishing, everybody said treble hook. 
And I found that the mortality rate, whenever you hook a fish with a treble hook, nine times out of 10, that fish is going to die, even if it's too small and you're trying to release it. And I've gone specifically to using a kale hook now, a long shank straight hook um, that is a lot easier to um, remove from a fish that has swallowed it. And nine times out of 10, I can get the, the hook out without killing the fish. Yeah, you know, they're... Um the flounder there there's not a lot of space in between the mouth and and the gullet you know their mouth is really short um so it it's it's it is easy to get one deep hook set and you know it's certainly if if you got your finger all or your pliers all the way down its jaw and wiggling that treble hook around it's it's not a good situation for it i rarely use pliers I use my thumb and I go up over the top of the gill plate and hold that bottom lip open. And then I send my finger down and I use the back of my fingernail on the barb of the hook to do a backwards flip to get that hook out. That's just something that I've learned and developed from doing it for so long. Yeah. He's the only one I've ever seen do that. And and he's a master at it. (laughs) He's a master at it. Now, during the peak of the flounder season, my thumb will be nothing it'll look like it'd been through a macerator from going across the top of those gill plates and them gill rakers slicing my thumb open but it's it's worth it to to save the fish yeah yeah we've you know i used to work in the hatchery system and um these these fish that we'd receive from folks like wayne and just for the record um wayne wayne collects fish for sea center texas and he's on an educational permit to do that so just not anybody can 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 do what what wayne's doing for parks and wildlife so i just wanted to get that out there but yeah when when we'd receive these fish you would know almost immediately um those that that had a a deep hook set and those that didn't so you could cull some fish off right off the bat that you knew weren't going to make it into the hatcher program uh or they weren't going to survive in a tank i should say and then it'd take it'd take about you know upwards of a week for some of the some of the more stressed out fish to to uh where you saw that they're sick enough to where they need some treatment but you you know it, some fish that are that are hooked right on the lip they do great no stress whatsoever but just some of those that are deeper hook set you have to kind of baby those a little bit more give them some antibiotics or treat them whatever it's, I, I think now um the technique that that wayne's gone to um, for the collection of the species that he's donating to the sea center now if it's a fish that is lip hooked that he can easily retrieve the hook and get it out without hurting the fish those are the fish that he's keeping ones that are gut hooked now i don't think that he's even bothering yeah, you know. a lot of times yeah. well myself personally if it's a f- small fish like that that's gut hooked i'll cut the line off um leave the hook in and give the chance a fish a better chance of trying to that's the best that's the best thing to do uh, I uh, this isn't for flounder, but twice with with redfish, we we caught fish out of uh, one of the fishing ponds at the hatchery, and I noticed something sticking out of its of its anus. It looked like a piece of grass, so I pulled on that thing to pull it out, and it wouldn't come out, but it felt hard. At and then I started to twist it. Well, it was a cut line with the circle hook attached to it. That redfish had passed that circle hook all the way through, but it couldn't it, it couldn't release it because of the, the the final little curve on the hook. So, I pulled that thing out, 
I did a little twist and, and took that circle hook out of I got it I've got it I still have it and it's amazing I mean that's the best thing you can do is if you got one that you're worried about uh, pulling the hook out of it just cut your line and let the fish do what it can do hooks are cheap wow. <laughs> I mean I, I I keep plenty of hooks in on on me at all times for that reason alone I'm not going to risk trying to kill a fish just to save a hook well next time you catch a redfish and you see something sticking out of his, <laughs> out of his butthole just pull on it and you might you might have yourself a little treasure there so. well you know it's uh, funny talking telling that story because years ago kilt had the hundred thousand dollar bass championship tournament that they did on lake conroe and they they had a, a giant 18 wheeler tank or trailer that they had with glass sides on it that they had set up to collect all the bass that had been caught during the tournament and went over there to look at the fish that had been caught and there's a, a bass with one of those segmented worms hanging out of its hand. <laughs> really <laughs> all right i got i gotta pull my sheet up here because I, I have i think i had some questions specific questions i wanted to ask oh i know let's get into um Let's talk about the regulations a little bit. Um, so right now, what's today? The November the third, fourth, 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 I fourth November fourth. Um, in, in Texas, in, in the month of November, you could keep rod and reel two fish per day, and um, that goes all the way actually through December fifteenth. And also in November, you cannot gig any flounder but starting december 1st you could gig flounder again only two fish until the 15th and then after the 15th it goes back to five fish per person no matter what sort of gear or method you're using uh, the, the reason for that closure is to allow the, the the bulk of the population that's migrating to give them a chance to go offshore and to spawn the the first the first set of regulations went in and it was just for the month of November. So gigging was banned for November. Anglers, rod and reel anglers could catch two fish per day. That was in 2009, I think. And then in 2014, they extended that closure to December 15th. Um, or they reduced the bag limit till December 15th. You can gig in December. Um, so on the water, have you guys Buzz, we'll start with you. Have y'all have you seen a difference? Do you feel like there's more flounder out there now than there were back in in the mid to late 2000s? You know, as far as overall numbers, I'm not sure that there's been an increase. Um, I'm actually catching overall less flounder than I used to 10, 15 years ago. But I have noticed in the last um, four or five years that you're starting to get better quality females that are reaching maturity. Um, you're seeing a lot more six, seven, eight pound fish being caught on a regular basis during the flounder run than what you ever did before. What about you, Wayne? Have you seen any? I mean, do you notice anything? You've been here 10 years. You feel like it's changed in one way or it's, another? It's changed. Some, some years are just better than others. The year the hurricane hit here, it was phenomenal. We found flounder in places they shouldn't even be and caught a lot of fish and then this year i would say has been relatively slow last year was relatively slow but uh it's it's hard to say so uh, i just got back from a, a, a 
Parks and Wildlife Commissioner's meeting and they presented some data on flounder. And this is the cliff note version and maybe not a this about as accurate as I could get with my scribbly notes that I wrote down. For flounder, when they when they do a, a regulation change, I thought this was interesting. And in one year you can see about sixty one percent of the impact of, of that regulation change. And in three years you ought to be able to see ninety five percent of the impact. But it takes six years to see the full uh, impact of those regulation changes because that's the life history of the flounder um, plays into that. So we ought to be able to see 100% of the impact from the 2009 regulation changes today. We, what's happening today should be reflective of, of those changes. Uh, but for the 2014 extension of, of the two fish bag limit, it's it's still too early to tell if that's played any part. Um, Wayne, you just mentioned something that's probably the most critical component of the recovery of southern flounder, and that's weather. Um, the larvae, when when the fish go off the shoulder spawn, they're spawning in about like 90 feet of water, and they don't all leave. I mean, not all the flounder migrate offshore. We know that, but the, the mass majority of the spawning population is going offshore. And they're spawning in pretty deep water. And then those lar the, the larvae are uh, through tides and currents and, and weather patterns drift back into the bay systems to uh, live out their juvenile life. When those larvae are offshore, they need cold water. They need, they, we need cold winters. If they get water temperatures, um, I'd say higher than about 68 degrees Fahrenheit, then the the ability for those larvae to survive dramatically decreases. They, they really need cold water, 62 to 68 Fahrenheit. Um, one thing I think I've heard um, some data on is that the water temperature actually can be a determining factor of whether this the flounder is a male or a female. Is that something that's true? Yeah, that's true. I mean, any so if the temperature is optimal, if it's just dialed in into their perfect zone, which is which is in the mid 60s to 68 degrees Fahrenheit, then you should have a 50% split male to female population. If you get outside of that, it, it, it causes stress for the fish. And anytime when a fish is under, during the time of sex determination, if that fish is stressed, it's more likely it's gonna be a male. It just takes less energy to become a male than it does to become a female. Can uh, that can all, um, explain why some years you're going to have an uh, exorbitantly large number of, of smaller flounder that are being caught because you had a spawn that was predominantly male it flounder? Could, yeah, yeah, that could definitely play into it. So each year class is going to be different. Um, I mean, optimally, you, you'll have a cold winter and you'll get at least 50% females. Um, but what was interesting, what they what they mentioned in this meeting uh, this past week was that the 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 fall gillnet samples that they take uh, have shown have been pretty stable over the last several years. There's there's actually a slight increase in the fall gillnets, and the gillnets are catching subadult and, and adult fish. They're not catching the larvae. The spring gillnets, however, since 2014, have been going have been going down 
which kind of tells you either a a lot of fish are still getting caught while they're migrating offshore or or b a lot of fish aren't returning back into the bay systems um so we're not seeing as many fish in, in the spring gill nets over this past couple of years now the bag sains where they kind of gauge recruitment the larval class recruitment each year the bag sains they're, they're pulling a, a fine mesh sane through the water and uh i mean they're counting every species of of, of juvenile fish and, and minnows and crabs whatever they catch in that net they're they're identifying so in that this past spring 2016 that was the lowest uh, number of flounder ever recorded in bag saints we had a really warm winter last year so we got really poor larva recruitment the following spring so here we are november 4th it's i don't know it's going to be indian summer today whatever (laughs) you know it's crazy we we haven't we had one front where it got kind of cool for a few days yeah i mean it was in the lower 60s or something it wasn't it wasn't real a real heavy heavy front and so here we are in, in the beginning of november and it's super super warm and which doesn't it's not looking like it's going to shape up to be a great year again unless we just get surprised with some really cold fronts here pretty soon Normally, this time of year, your water temperatures are starting to dip down close to the low 70s and high 60s. This year, right now, you've got you're looking at 75, 76 degree water temperatures. That's almost 10 degrees above what it needs to be for flounder larvae. Yeah, right now. And the one thing we've noticed too is um, most of your passes and access areas that are feeding the Gulf, the fish haven't shown up here yet. They're still in your upland waterways, your bays, your your cuts and passes. Yeah, they're staging. Still staging. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, you know, the, the likely the run's going to be it's it's late yes. this, this year. So that goes back to the what I want to get at with the regulation changes is that you know, the we, we you, you have the extension until December 15th for the two fish bag limit, which you know, that might catch the migration, but if the migration is late, maybe the fish aren't moving offshore till mid-December to late December, you know, you miss, you know, I guess you should say the regulation changes won't have any effect. They won't be helping, at least. And uh, In an know, ideal situation, the weather patterns of a normal situation, they w- that would have been an optimal. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Under normal weather patterns, you would have caught the migration, but... I think it's something to, to, to for folks to think about um, is that if, if our weather does keep trending this way and changing, is that, you know, we as anglers might need to, you know, think about having some flexibility in um, in 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 the, the flounder closure um, or, you know, self-imposed uh, regulations. You know, if you, you know that it's 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 warm and you're having a uh, you know the flounder are going to have a tough year and you don't need those five fish to fill your freezer then you know only keep two or three you know do it do what you can personally to help out the uh, the populations so one um question i've got for you too now i know that before there was a big push for um saving fish over 20 inches because of the brood population and even the bigger fish over 25 everybody was saying that those fish should be released so that they can 
produce the the larvae for the next generations. Um, is it true that the larger fish, once they get reach a certain point of maturation, um, don't have the egg development that some of your smaller fish do? Well, I'll speak to to what I know from from um, spawning them in the hatchery. Uh, I can't really speak to what goes on in the wild. Two different situations, but in the hatchery, we we preferred about a twenty inch fish. The, the the bottom end that we would use for, for for spawning was about the 17 to 18 inch fish and you know occasionally we'd have one that was 22 23 but about a 20 inch fish is what we preferred we uh we did spawn some monsters i mean we we had some just you know some seven a couple of seven pound flounder in there and um I say a couple, and I really mean literally a couple, like one or two. And uh, they did, that might be a little high. They're probably six pounds, come to think of it. They did okay. There was so much variability from fish to fish that it was really hard to gauge if size made a difference because we could have two 20-inch fish next to each other, and one we could spawn multiple times, and she, she was a producer for us the whole spawning season. While the other didn't didn't do anything for us, so um, the bigger the fish they are, the the more eggs they can carry, the more eggs they have. So that kind of philosophy makes a little bit of sense. Um, I I would assume because we saw this with trout, I would assume as they got towards the end of their life, that that quality of eggs that they're producing is going to go down. May still have the number of eggs, but the quality is going to go down. I know m- myself personally from cleaning all the flounder that I've cleaned throughout the years. That seems to me the bigger the fish, the more the the, egg, the bigger the egg sacs always were. And I always thought that the bigger fish would be more productive as far as producing the the larvae. Well, they, yeah, I mean they certainly, from a from a volume standpoint, can produce more eggs. I just don't know if that always translated to. Good quality larvae. Viable eggs. Viable it. Right. Right. Exactly. So, um, a couple more notes from that meeting the other day. Well, really one. The, the, one of the last points she made was, uh, and this was uh, Tiffany Hopper, Hopper with Texas Parks and Wildlife. She said from, from 2009 to present, there's a slight, very slightest positive trend in gill net samples because of what she what we've been seeing in the fall gill nets but they're going to keep a really close eye on all those gill net populations over these next couple of years and keep monitoring it so i don't think i don't think that we're uh at a point where parks and wildlife is going to push for any regulation changes in the next year or, or two but if we get several consecutive warm winters back to back and uh, they start seeing those fall gillnet samples go down, then they might start, you know, reaching out for public comment and seeing what else can be done. I know once they reduced the the daily bag limit to five, prior to that, whenever it was 10, I personally caught more limits of 10 limit fish than I did five limit fish whenever the limit was changed. I don't know what the reasoning was for that, but back in the... 10 years ago it wasn't anything uncommon for me to catch a solid um, 
eight eight fish over 20 inches on a 10 fish limit and i'm not seeing the same number of quality fish on a consistent basis now there are has been a trend of met much a uh, more eight to ten pound fish being caught now than than what there were you didn't hardly ever hear of somebody catching a fish that large back then um we're now this days i think maybe it's attributed to the two fish limit in november you're seeing a, a larger quantity of quality fish that are in the the trophy class what's your i mean you want the biggest fish just fish you're going to take home to eat what are you looking for um 20 to 22 inch fish is a quality fish you're getting a good amount of meat off of that fish um generally in in the month of november when the run I try to limit myself. I don't. I'm not going to keep anything under a 19-inch fish. Basically, you're not getting anything out of that fish. Um, for for um, harvestable purposes, to for the meat that you're getting, I'm, I myself personally are, are only keeping 19 fishing, 19-inch fishing up, which means I'm releasing a lot of 18s, 17s. You give them another year to spawn. I mean, yeah, I think that's good. How about you, Wayne? Do you like? I, I like my. Fish? fillets thinner so i i keep smaller fish you do yeah i'll put back anything over 20 but from 16 to 19 how do you fillet your fish because i heard something the other day that i never thought of filleting a fish this way do, do you start at the at the backbone and work your way towards the dorsal fin or the yes fin? so i heard from someone they start at the dorsal fin work their way towards the backbone they don't stop their cut they just work it over the backbone and then get that bottom fillet and so there you've got two fillets that are connected and then you can just when you do your stuff flounder you just wrap that around whatever your stuffing is i do mine i i do i slice straight down the center on especially on my bigger fish slice straight down the center work to the outer fin on the backbone and toward the tail flip it down and then cut it off the skin i've got a skinless boneless quarter uh, four quarters per fish and actually the way i do my stuff flounder is i lay that boneless skinless fillet down and i pack stuffing on it and i roll it up stand it on end stab with a toothpick and each rolled up quarter fillet is a portion for a person okay and then i'll make a seafood queso where i might take a shrimp and crab with cheese and rotel and i pour that seafood queso over the top of that rolled up um stuff flounder and it's just oh man to die for killing me right now (laughs) (laughs) my wife will chop chop the flounder up and mix onions and egg and flour in it and like a croquette really and then just make a patty and and pan fry it that's one way she fixes it there's several ways we fix it but that's one of my favorite so um you you come down for two months at a time is does does your wife come and stay the whole time oh sure yeah she stays with me she's she's as good a flounder fisherman as i am (laughs) she caught three yesterday and i never got one did it take some convincing to get her to come down here and start and start and start doing this with you or is she always when i came down and stayed a month she said next year i'm going with you you stay too long (laughs) (laughs) when we had grandkids at home uh young she would come down for a few weeks at a time and and go back but now that they're all grown and they don't really need us, she comes and stays, and she gets as excited about flounder fishing as I do. How many y'all y'all fish every day if if the weather's good and I mean, pretty much uh, 
sometimes we'll take off one day a week, usually on Saturday because the parks are full, get our washing done and go to the grocery store and, and uh, then start back in Sunday. Speaking of Saturday, isn't tomorrow the the rally? The biker, yes. Lone Star Biker Rally in Galveston. You better get your supplies today, buddy. That's it's true. It'll be locked down tomorrow. It'll be loud <laughs> all weekend out here. Yeah, that's pretty wild. Speaking of which, we've actually got a few campers here in the in the park um, that are here for the rally. They are. <laughs> They're not here to fish. They, I've already saw a bunch of motorcycles parked over by an RV while ago. That that's what they're here for. They're this is a nice safe area away from from the rally where they can stay kind of peacefully. But you can imagine at midnight or so, you're going to hear people coming back from the rally with the rumbling of the motorcycles. Probably going to upset some of the other campers. Yeah. Why don't you talk about the park a little bit? I mean, how, uh, talk about this place. You know what? How people can uh, can can start can come out here and, and get a spot. And um, we have sixty nine RV spots and four cabins here. Um, very nice location. It's I couldn't ask for a more beautiful place to work. Um, you can do daily, weekly, or monthly rentals on the RV spots. Um, cabins are generally done daily or weekly. They're not they're not they're a nice cabin to stay in but they're not cheap um the park is beautiful it's uh well maintained and yeah people some like wayne himself he'll come down here late september and has a reservation booked up until january and he stays here for the entire flounder run which is you got quite a few campers that come down here and do the same thing what's the uh is this the busiest is the winter the busiest time or y'all stay pretty full peak season i think runs through september um and then this is actually considered the off season um and the rates are actually a little bit lower during this time of year but it looked pretty full though driving in i mean yeah uh, weekends get pretty crowded you have a lot of weekend warriors that come in and come down and they'll spend the, the friday saturday and leave out on sunday um to go back home um and then you have some people that are retired that come down here and stay for, like Wayne, for months on end that just enjoy. It's, a, it's pleasant down here in the fall. It's not really too hot. Um, you get past, well, I can't say that, but we're, right now we're in an Indian summer where it's actually been exorbitantly hot. But um, as far as the park itself, I've been coming out here myself for years and years fishing. Um, back even before it was a county park, back when it was a campground of America Park years ago and it's actually changed quite a bit the topography um where the bridge crosses over there used to be a cut that fed directly into the to the open um waters past the bulkhead in the front we've lost about 40 or 50 yards of a bank back behind where the bathhouses are now we used to come out here and gig years ago um just walk into the park and start gigging the little lagoon right there and i don't i don't think i've seen anybody do that since i've been over here working they still gig to the to the south that you know that that mm-hmm. shoreline on on cold pass you know some people walk in and we'll get bird island bird island yeah. they'll they'll gig around bird island um you have quite a few people that gig christmas and bastrop bays it's like a family reunion when we come down in the fall because there's there's so many down here like us that will stay two three four months and we just it's so tight you know you just get to be good friends with them and then keep up with them all year and facebook and text messages and then it's always a reunion when we get back together they see the so same. you're like a little kid when like when august september roll around you just can't wait until 
I told yeah. my wife when the day we arrived, I said, I feel like a sixth grader on the first day of summer. <laughs> I just, it's all in front of me. It's, it's got to take a lot of, uh, maybe not a ton, but it takes quite a bit of preparation. I guess, oh, it to, does. To, to get all, to get your stuff down here. So uh, walk me through that. You know, what, what do you do back at the house to get ready to come down to come stay at a place like this for two months on end? Oh, I've, I've got a three-quarter ton diesel pickup. Of course, it's got to be serviced. I've got the RV trailer, fifth wheel. Then I pull a 12-foot trailer behind that with my Ranger on it, Polaris Ranger, and then my wife's car, and then she pulls the boat. So, so just, you're bringing three trailers down here. Yes. Just maintaining the batteries and the tires is a, is a job. And then all your fishing equipment. And then when I get home, all the salt water's got to be cleaned off of everything. It, I spend about a month before I come down prepping, and I'll spend a month when I get home cleaning up. Cleaning up. Mm-hmm. Well, if you look out the window, he's also got a canopy set up with the clean his own little cleaning station here. Oh, he, I see that. He's got the cat's meow of the campsite here. <laughs> I, I did. You know, you do. You got the corner lot here. I do. I like it. Uh, did you have to fight over that over time? Sometimes or? I have to fight over it. Yeah. You do? Well, this is, this is the third year you've had this spot, isn't it? Uh, third or fourth, I believe. Yeah. Um, reservations for the park, if, if somebody was interested, they start taking reservations for the following year on January 2nd. Okay. They can either call the, the, marine, the park office or they can go online. So I couldn't reserve one for next fall. Not right now. you got to wait till yeah. next year. Okay. Yes. I see. I see. Um. Anything else on the on the park side of things that people would need to know if they want it, if they want? What are some do's and don'ts? Well, I mean, a lot of people bring their pets. They have to take care of picking up after their pets. Um, we do have a, a trailer set up in the on, over by the bathhouses, which is another thing. We have a um, pavilion outside that can be rented for special occasions, for birthdays, for family reunions. Um, we also have a um, banquet room called the tarpon room that you can rent. Um, for special occasions or, or events that's also got outside of the tarpon room there's a giant um, boardwalk um, pavilion area that um, just recently we had somebody that had a class reunion that that rented the tarpon room and the and the pavilion they had a, a big soiree and get together for their class of um, from their school um, there's a, a lot of family interaction like you have people like Wayne that have been coming for years and other families that all come down at the same time so they develop a a fellowship of people that are camping and fishing and sharing the same interest it's a a really pristine location you have a bathhouse that also has um, showers in it with um, a handicap restroom down below there's a, a laundry facility that you can do your laundry here where you don't have to go into the town um, we don't have a store, but there is one um, about a block up the road. We do sell ice in the facility, so you don't have to go to town every time you've got to try to ice your drinks or fish whenever you've gone out on the day for fishing. Yeah. And you could fish here, right? I mean, you could, yes. you could fish right off the bank. Yeah, we've got a uh, a big finger finger pier that goes out by the um, two of the cabins that are lit up at night. Quite a few p- people fish for trout under the lights at night. Um, then there's a, a good area of bank that behind the, the shower and bath houses, which Wayne likes to to 
camp out at fishing a lot of times that's where he catches a lot of the the flounder that he donates to the sea center and then there's also a bulkhead that's on the 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 gulf side of the park um that people catch a lot of fish there too let's go back i want to go back to tackle i just i just realized i didn't ask y'all what do you rod and reel uh what's your setup what do you use i like a medium action um bait casting rod and generally i'm throwing a bait casting reel what's your rod with the length um anywhere from six and a half to seven foot okay and i generally i I prefer using braid i used um 20 pound strand forever and i lost too many big flounder that would actually snap the monofilament line here recently i've gone to a fins braid anywhere from 35 to 45 pound test i think i think I think using braid with flounder is smart, especially if you're fishing areas um, um, like, you know, around a lot of structure. If you're fishing around a lot of pylons or bulkheads or things like that where where you can get some snags when the flounder's, you know, trying to get away from you, that braid comes in handy and helps out quite a bit. Um, I fish in the Brazos River. um, There's always flooded timber that are getting washed down the riverbank. And there's trees along the edge of the riverbank all the way up and down. And some of those places where you've got those um, trees along the edge of the water are perfect places that flounder like to lay that are ambush points for them. And like he he was talking about the tree that he saw out here in the past a few years ago. Um, I found trees that are similar like that in, in the Brazos River where you can sit there pretty much on that tree and catch your limit throughout the day. We caught some a couple of years ago in the Brazos River, Buzz and I. We were literally standing on a funnel-shaped hole at the end of a root ball on the tree, and we were throwing not four feet from us. Just right at your toes. At Dragging toes. along parallel to the, the tree that's parallel on the bank, and you might have an eight- or ten-foot stretch that the water would be washed out along the edge of the um, the tree between the tree and the sand of the bank, and the flounder would be laid up in there. That's I. So we'll go back to what y'all said earlier on. Um, and that when you find a spot, you know, you and, you and you get a fish, you you stay on that spot because uh, those when those flounder bed up, there could be, you know, a dozen of them just stacked. Could be thirty up, or forty, <laughs> and they're on top of each other. Yeah, you know, they're not just laying flat in in a single deck. I mean, there could be two or three stacked on top of one another right so there's could be a whole slew of them in there you just don't realize and that's one of the things people that are starting out flounder fishing they don't have any idea of some of the things that me and wayne have done for having done it for so long know what to do um anytime that you're fishing in an area and you catch a fish there more often than not that's going to be a place that you want to return to in the future on other trips the same thing if you go to a spot and you're not catching anything probably a good reason why you're not catching fish at that location it's just not a an area that's going to be conductive to being productive on a regular basis what what do you what about wayne what do you use what's your rig i use the same thing braided line i use 20 pound fire line and then i use a a 20 pound monofilament leader and uh, you know when when you're dragging that weight across the bottom you're trying to figure out are you dragging it across mud or shell pits Every time that weight falls off in a pit on the bottom, it's very similar to a flounder bite. 
for, for especially for somebody that's unexperienced, and it'll drive you nuts dragging a, a weight across, and then yeah. add to that the mullet uh, action from your bait, and it's, the braided line's just so much more sensitive, and you can tell more about what you're feeling. I don't like using braid, but I like using a spinning reel on about a six foot rod because I'm never casting very far for flounder, and I like just to be able to just pitching pitch it out there um and i don't know why i prefer a spinner over a bait cast for that but that's just kind of what i've always used for flounder i like the bait caster better because i can keep the line on my on finger. finger yeah and if if he hits and runs you're quick to to uh release the reel and with a spin cast you can't do that and feel your line plus if he runs it's, it's hard to get your bail from now Buzz is showing me a, a thing on his finger. You want to talk? What is, I, what is um, that? The way I hold my rod, I literally hold the rod where I'm gripping the side of the reel with my left hand, and my thumb is in front of the re the release of the line um, coming out of the bait casting reel, and that line is going across the top of my thumb. And during flounder season, I literally will have a groove um, worn in my thumbnail where it that looks line like, like self mutilation. <laughs> <laughs> It's that's a nice cut from when that red uh, yesterday I caught a twenty seven and a half inch red that weighed about a little over eight and a half pounds, and whenever he took off running, and that line was across my thumb, it it burned a little groove in it. Yeah, I mean that's not a little groove; that's pretty serious. <laughs> but that's that's common for me during flounder season. But with the the line going across my thumb, the least little tink, or sometimes a flounder bite can be so subtle that it just i'm one little bitty tiny thump and other times it's a it's a bone jarring thump whenever you got a big flounder that nails a bait it's it'll it shakes your rod and it literally will send tremors down your body because it's such a <laughs> I, I call it a bone jarring thump well, so how do you tell the difference between that bone jarring thump and like oh i got a rock or i got a I got a limb i'm on a snag whenever whenever you um fish flounder consistently and you're dragging your bait across the bottom like that Whenever a flounder hits, it's a kill strike, um, and it there's there's nothing like it. It's so distinguishable that whenever you get accustomed to knowing what that thump feels like, you'll know it every time you get it. Um, it's not just going to be as you're dragging across and you feel a change in the structure. You it'll just you'll feel just a slight resistance, which sometimes flounder bites can be like that. Some I've had flounders where you didn't feel a thump you didn't feel anything you just felt like all of a sudden you were hung on something and it was a flounder so that goes back to the you know that you got to be pretty dialed into the action of your rod very you know you've got to be able to feel those those differences the sensitivity yeah makes a big difference yeah and you can spend a lot of time if you if you think it it's a flounder but it's only the weight dropping in a pit and you sit there and count to 30 to find out it's just your weight that even slows the process down more. But I usually will count to about 10, and then I'll put a little tension on it, just a little, and just see if he pulls back. And if he pulls back any, I give him slack and, and wait. And then, then you're waiting until 30. Well, no, then I'll, I'll wait about 10 more seconds. Okay. Then, okay. then stick him. That's one thing, too, on, on the retrieve. I keep a steady, constant retrieve where I'm, I'm – it's real, real slow – I call it creeping, and I'm just creeping it in a steady, constant retrieve. Anytime, a lot of times, anytime I stop, a crab will find it. And a lot of times, you'll 
think that you've got a crab on and it's a flounder. And another fish that's a nemesis for flounder fishermen are these brown eels that we've got around here. Ooh. Their bite feels exactly like a flounder bite. Yeah. And then you do your count to 30 and you go to set the hook and it's like all of a sudden you're trying to pull in the bottom of the earth up to the, I mean, they, whenever a, a brown eel bites, he'll go back down inside of a hole and you sit there and it's, it's he's anchored. Yeah. yeah. He's anchored. That's the biggest eel you've caught. <sighs> biggest eel was probably three, three foot long and big around as a Coke can. Wow. Yeah. Out of Quintana. And I've actually caught an albino one day fishing in Quintana that was all white. And I actually had my camera phone on me at that time and didn't think about it. I, I took it off the hook and let it go. Oh, I didn't, man, didn't even get a picture of it. <laughs> that's a, such a rare occurrence. I'll probably never see another one. Oh, no, that's a, that's, a, that's a trophy for sure. Man, time flies when you're having fun. I did not realize we'd been in here this long. How long? It's been an hour and five minutes talking about <laughs> flounder. But well, I got the feeling you guys talk about this all day. Whenever you're passionate about something <laughs> like we are, it doesn't take long. And there's a, a lot more that you can cover and, and talk about. Well, let's talk about it real quick. Someone, so one of the things that's, and you mentioned this already, that's really great about flounder fishing is that you don't have to have a boat to do it. I mean, if you've got shoreline access, especially this time of year, if you've got shoreline access close to a place where the fish are migrating offshore, then you've got a spot to fish. So someone getting getting just doesn't do a lot of flounder fishing. What's um, what's some advice, Wayne? What's some advice you'd give them to to get into this? Um, just some little helpful tactics that they could they could use. I tell them to call Buzz and he'll teach them. <laughs> <laughs> um, you want to look for access points that are cuts, passes, rivers, um, creeks that access deep water to the Gulf. These are points that the fish are going to be moving out of the inland waterways. Once the migration begins and leaving out and going to the open water of the Gulf, I think a statistic that I've heard is that about 75% of the population of flounder leave on a, a yearly basis to go out into the open waters of the Gulf to, for um, the spawning purpose. Um, those access points of, of areas are the, the areas that you want to be targeting um, that the consistently they've got to move through that area. And those are the areas, rollover pass, the Galveston Ship Channel, um, the jetty channels in Surfside, the mouth of the Brazos River, um, San Luis Pass here. On further down south, you've got um, Packery Channel, Port yeah. Aransas. Um, those are the areas that, that are consistently going to produce for you in the fall of the year. Um, and I always heard water temperature, the magic number is 69 for migration. Once you get it, the water's dropped to that lower temperature is when the mass um, population is going to be moving out to the open waters. I got to fish quite a bit with uh, Phil Ortiz, the flounder pounder, and um, he kind of spoke to the same thing, except for he put it in terms of fronts, and um, it was it would it basically equates to that third strong when the second to third strong front pushes through. That's when you get most of the most of the fish moving, and that's when you need to be in those passes and those spots to catch yeah. fish. So someone getting into this, I mean, they could just go. They can go. You can go buy a Carolina rig, or but you know the point is you, your bait needs to be on the bottom. You need to be able to drag it across the bottom. You can use live mullet, live mud minnows. You can catch those on your own or buy them at the bait store. Once it people, gets colder, shrimp work well. Shrimp work well. They do. They love them. But so does everything else. Okay. So I, I won't use a shrimp. <laughs> no, I won't use a shrimp until it gets cold. We use dead shrimp, or you always 
live. Uh, this time of year, you can catch them. Once it gets cold, you, you can't you can't find them. You have to buy them. But uh, live. But wait live. till the yeah live shrimp. Okay. Uh, wait till the the trash fish kind of move out with the cold weather, and and the shrimp works well. One other thing I might suggest, though, whenever it gets that time of year, whenever the water temperature is right, it's usually cold outside, yeah. and um, waders are almost that's one of the things you want to put in your arsenal because nothing like being out there and stinging cold and you're catching fish and you're freezing your nads off <laughs> i got right. a funny story a good friend of mine um we were fishing just right here uh across the the channel at titlam tatlam and we're right there on on the on the on the edge going to, to go into the the bayou there not 10 feet from the from the bank he's got his waders on it's cold He's just going to jump in and start wading that that shoreline. Didn't realize the channel's right there. Oh. He jumps off the side of the boat. Filled up his waders. He's, he's gone. He's under the boat. Oh. Couldn't see his head. I lean over. the And then he, he pops up like a bobbin cork. And I, I lean over and, and grab him and help him get back in. But, yeah, he got soaked. Oh. Waders were full. Holy cow. It's an important lesson to learn, you know. Don't just go jumping off the side of the boat when you got your waders on. It could be a dangerous combination. And I, dangerous. I myself, I like breathable waders, and I can layer clothing underneath those breathable waders. And a lot of times, it'll it'll be really cold in the early morning hours when you're starting out to fish, and uh, throughout the day it'll warm up. You can peel some of those layers out from underneath um, to make yourself more comfortable. Neoprene waders, I'm hot in those things. I don't care how cold it is outside. <laughs> They, they're, they're, you're literally going to sweat inside of those things, and you're going to be wet on the inside yeah, of your waders anyway. Yeah, I'm all about the breathable myself. Yeah. That's what I like. Yeah. And I highly recommend bringing your life jacket if you're going to come to the pass. It's a good point. Um, the Brazos is the same way, too. Yes. I mean, both in the Brazos and the pass, it seems like there's at least one drowning, mostly in the more so in the summertime. you got a lot of people here but almost every year. I, I actually studied, studied up on this before I got hired out here. And um, on an average, there's four and a half people a year that die between San Luis Pass and the mouth of the Brazos River every year. From drowning. From drowning. Life jackets are important. Absolutely. You can put up all the warning signs. People out there, they ignore the warning signs. And you have people that come down here that aren't familiar with this area um, that are out there in waters that they have no idea. One minute you may be shin deep water and you take that next step and it's 12, 15 foot. And if you've got the the mass amounts of water that are moving in and out of the pass here with tidal movements, you're you've got fifteen twenty knot currents. Well, you could be waist deep, and that sweeps you off your feet. Yeah, you don't absolutely. have to be. Yeah, you don't have to be that deep for it to take yeah. you out. But um, a personal flotation device is something that anybody that's out here fishing. If you're not, if you're not standing on the bank, then you need to have one on. Absolutely. Well, any 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 final thoughts? Any anything you want to leave the listeners with with regards to catching? Um, flounder fishing is addictive. If um, learn what you're doing, study up on it. Um, that flounder fever book that Chester Moore um, wrote is a good good source to to study on. Um, go to different. They're not not so many websites anymore, but you got different pages on Facebook where people are willing to share their knowledge. Um, you've got guides that'll take you, but um, find somebody like myself. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> then, um, are are you putting it out there? 
I, I help people all the time. I, I was fortunate enough whenever I was younger that um, an older gentleman that I knew who was paraplegic that had been fl- flounder fishing all his life taught me the techniques that were involved to be able to catch the fish. And, and I'm, I've been willing to share that information ever since. So how can folks get a hold of you? Through, through the park? <laughs> I don't know if we want people calling me at the park. <laughs> Look me up on Facebook, Kevin Keith Burns. Okay. Wayne, any final thoughts? Well, if if you get into it, I just give you a heads up. It's addictive, and <laughs> and there's no cure for it. And and stay away from the tall guy in the in the flat bottom boat out near San Luis Pass. <laughs> yeah, don't go near him. Don't follow him around. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, how are you liking your new job? I'm enjoying it. This is I. I've getting getting asked that a lot actually, and um, the what I've my answer has been I'm getting to do a, a whole lot of um, a lot of things instead of a whole lot of a, a, a few things. Yeah. Um, as as it was my, my former position, so yeah, uh, getting to do this and getting to run up and down the coast and hang out with guys like you and talk about fishing and work on some some pretty important issues. We, you know, right now we're we're uh, advocating, along with pretty much everyone else on the on the on the coast, to get the uh, waste pits removed out of the San Jacinto River. There at I-10, and uh, so that's a pretty important issue. One of the things we're working on right now. Talk about nobody reading signs. You've got these Department of Health uh, warnings up all contaminant over, levels up for Galveston Bay for PCBs and dioxins and things like that, and um, you know, I got to talk to, uh, I was talking to um, Parks and Wildlife with Lance Robinson one day about this, and he was saying, you know, people just had this cavalier, his words were cavalier attitude about the whole thing, and he was like, you know, this is pretty serious. We need to pay attention to those signs, and you can go up the, drive across I-10 right now, and I guarantee you there's someone fishing off the bank right there. That's keeping, keeping their the catch. pits. Uh, the waste pits, excuse me. And, yeah, they're keeping their catch. And we, we talked about this in the previous podcast, but but there there's some areas where you, you're not supposed to keep anything. Other areas, it's only close to blue crabs and speckled trout and hardhead or catfish, no matter what kind of catfish it is. Um, so pregnant females are not supposed to eat any of it. Young kids are not supposed to eat any of it. If you're an older female or you're a male, then you get eight ounces a month. Not much. That's not, not very much. much. <laughs> no, that's a fillet yeah. at best. That's not much fish. So that should tell you that those warnings are pretty serious and people need to pay attention to those signs. Yeah. So. One more thing I'd like to ask you, um, the hatchery, the the flounder production that they're, that they're having and the work that they're doing with the, the flounder there, um, has there been marked improvement on the production? I'm glad. Thanks for bringing that up because – we need to talk about that. That's important because um, a lot of folks, first of all, don't know that, that the hatcheries are working on southern flounder, the coastal hatcheries. They do redfish and speckled trout and now southern flounder. And this past year, 2015, was one of the best years that they, they'd had to, to date. Um, so in, in earnest, that stocking program's been going since 2006, and there have been marked improvements every year since then there you'll have an off year thrown in there here and there but the general trend has been more and more fish released every year and uh, 
last year was was the best. Now the numbers the release, I think it was 180,000 fish that were released last year, which when you compare it to what is done with speckled trout and red drums, seems kind of small. I mean, but it's not insignificant because flounder is just a whole nother ball of wax. And every little bit helps. Every little bit helps. And what's interesting is um, we we had the opportunity to to work with um, a, a, a scientist down in Palacios who works for Parks and Wildlife with Dusty McDonald, and he did temperature tolerances on um, southern flounder fingerlings, and he did he did cold weather events and he did warm weather events. So he has this there's an environmental chamber at that at that lab, and so they can dial in the temperatures. Uh, on, on tanks that are inside of this environmental temperatures to very specific degrees. And he basically, he got some fingerlings from the Corpus Christi hatchery and from the hatchery in Lake Jackson Sea Center and put them in small tanks inside this environmental chamber and exposed them to a, a freeze event. Took them down to zero degrees Celsius or 32 Fahrenheit. The water wasn't frozen over because it's salt water, but it's, it's, it's a freeze event held them there and then warmed them back up and so the larger fingerlings the, the fish that had gone through metamorphosis already and that were completely through that part of their life stage those fish he had all he had survival the smaller fish the smaller larvae the ones that were either going through metamorphosis or had not quite completed it that's where he saw mortality he saw the same thing when he warmed them up to really warm temperatures, 90, 90 degrees Fahrenheit and higher. Larger fish, 100% survival. Smaller fish, smaller larvae just going through metamorphosis, started to see uh, more mortality, some mortality. So uh, it's an important point uh, to make is that when the hatcheries are releasing fish, they're now targeting these fish that are through metamorphosis and releasing those and those fish have an excellent chance of surviving back out in the wild. Um, I understand. I, I try to keep up with a lot of what's going on over there at the Sea Center, and I understand they're getting ready to go through some kind of an expansion um, over there to expand the resources for the flounder development. Yeah, so, um, and, and CCA is, is, is a part of that. CCA donated some, some, some monies to Parks and Wildlife, to uh, start the process of putting in a, a building dedicated to southern flounder larvae production. And um, they should be they're gonna be breaking ground on that this year. I think I think the plans are completed. And so they're just going to start the, the contract document process and then put it out to bid. Um, but that building should provide an additional um, around 3,000 square feet of space for larvae tanks and for um, for food production to feed the larvae. Well, we could have a whole episode on flounder larvae and production. Yeah. I may I may do that at some point. <laughs> that in time. would be interesting. Um, I, I'll probably do that here real soon. Actually, well, I'd like to tip my hat to you for all the work that you did while you were with Sea Center Texas, and wish you all the best of luck with your new endeavor there with Texas Parks and Wildlife. Well, thank you, thank you, and thanks for thanks for bringing up the uh, the you know what parks and wildlife is doing with southern flounder because it's no easy job that those guys are doing and they they could not be where they are without the help of some pretty 
uh, key players that are that that have just really want to see the uh, want to see the fishery improve. And I'm sitting in front of two of them right now, Kevin Burns and Wing Pedigo. Um, Chester Moore has helped us quite a bit. Um, we we fished with CCA back in in the Sabine Lake in 2006 with him and uh, uh, a good flounder captain uh, at the time named uh, uh, Skip James and um, Phil Ortiz there in the Galveston area makes flounder pounder lures. He's been instrumental. We've had some volunteers, still some of them at Sea Center there now, that volunteer. They've helped us out quite a bit. There's been a couple of guides down south that have been helpful to the Marine Development Center, that hatchery. So Parks and Wildlife wouldn't be where it is today without help from folks like you. So I know that they appreciate that. I certainly appreciate it. I certainly send them my accolades because they, everybody over there just, they work hard and they, they are very concerned about the fish. They're they're like their they kids. Are, absolutely. You love your dog. They love their fish. That's, that's so true. <laughs> it's hard for maybe not so much now, but when you work there, before you start working there, the place like that at a hatchery, I don't care how much you fish. And then they told this to me when I took the job. I don't care how much you fish. Once you start working here, you won't fish as much. And it's true. And I don't know if it's because of starting a family or just not time, but I think I really do think part of it is like you see how much it takes for one stinking larvae to survive and you sure feel bad when you're out there on the water and you're pulling it out of the water as an adult um robert vega the director of of the hatchery program has always says like it's amazing when you think of what a what a larval fish has to go through to get to a juvenile stage it's like every single fish is its own little tiny miracle because it it is truly truly a feat to deal with what they have to deal with to get to the juvenile stages so especially with flounder that's one of the things too that is i'm passionate about is people following game regulations um and taking taking advantage of the regulations they're there for a reason to help protect the resources so that our children and our grandchildren will have them someday um i can't stand to see somebody that's keeping undersized fish oversized fish um, and that are just keeping everything that they catch just because they're they don't care because yeah. well yeah and they and you know law enforcement really they really try they're just they're, they're outnumbered outnumbered I yeah. mean duck duck season starting deer season starting and the flounder are migrating and they they just can't they can't do it all and they you know, you, they still they still put a lot of effort into the into the coast this time of year, um, but they've just this is their busiest time of the year, and they're just not not enough. Everything's happening in the fall. Yeah. Well, that's it on this episode of the Coastal Advocacy Adventures podcast, brought to you by the Coastal Conservation Association. Wayne, Buzz, and myself have decided that we're going to get together once again and talk a little bit more about flounder. And perhaps we'll be able to get uh, Chester Moore on with us this next time. If you enjoyed this episode, again, we encourage you to leave us your reviews. You can do that on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, or SoundCloud, whichever platform you're using to listen to this. Please go in there and and leave us some, uh, some feedback. Leave us those reviews. They'll help us shape the show into the future. Also, this next week... Uh, Stay tuned in because we're going to head down the coast and we're going to uh, talk to a 
well-known fishing guide down there, Jade Watkins. So I'm going to meet up with Jay and uh, CCA's John Blaha, and where we'll discuss mid-coast fishing, um, how the fishery has changed in the Rockport area over the past 30 years, and just some of the some of the things that Jay is seeing in his industry. So be sure to tune in next week. And thank you folks for listening. Stay coastal.